This morning's reading is from Isaiah 9, uh, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the awesome word of our beautiful God. Please be seated. All right, good morning, everybody. So right now, Tony is going to be lighting these awesome candles we have in front of us, and they represent hope, joy, love, and peace. And this morning, we are going to be talking about this peace, this Prince of Peace. We're going to be diving into what this actually means. So let's go ahead and pray for this service, and we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come before you right now. I just want to thank you so much for who you are. God, thank you so much for loving us enough to do everything that you've done for us. And God, I pray as we dive into your word this morning, God, that you would speak through me, that you would remove me from the equation, God, that this would be about you and that you would be honored and glorified and that everyone can leave here today knowing you better, loving you more, and knowing how you actually are the Prince of Peace. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I have a question for everybody. When you think about a prince, what do you think of? When you think about a prince, what do you think of? Thinking back to those times as a kid that you might have played medieval times in the backyard, the prince gallantly riding his mighty broomstick steed across the desolate backyard landscape, all in order to save the princess. Along the way, obviously, you're going to face many foes, but you, you have your trusty plastic sword to devastate the enemy as you send them running. So maybe that's what you think of. Or maybe you think of a firstborn son, a man of power, willing to do anything to save his country. Of course, as usual, save the princess and honor the king in the process, but someone who's willing to fight his way through for the kingdom. Maybe you think about almost every Disney movie ever made where the plot, no matter how different, is always about the prince rescuing the princess in some way, shape, or form. But in each of these scenarios, one thing rings true. The prince is the firstborn. He's a warrior. He's a fighter. He's a man that the world looks to for the success of their country. A man the king sends out to slay the dragon. The man who's seen and known by all, this guy's the ultimate hero. In every story, he's always the ultimate hero. So when I was a kid, my mom bought me this plastic suit of armor. It was supposed to represent and remind me of the armor of God, which is really cool. But the thing I remember most was how cool I thought I looked. 
head-to-toe armor with an epic sword and an imagination that could run wild. I remember thinking, now this is what a prince looks like. This is a warrior. And as I beat my brother with the plastic sword, this is what a prince does. Essentially believing that a good prince is not only dressed up awesome, is the firstborn, which I am, so it worked out in my scenario with my brother, but is a merciless killer who's willing to pull his sword at any moment to devastate the enemy. According to the world, this is what a prince is. According to the world, a prince without a sword is no prince at all. Today, as we dive into our passage, we're going to see how the prince we celebrate at Christmas is the only one that is not defined by the sword. He's the only one that flipped the script and showed the world a different way. The only one we truly can title in our final name in Isaiah 9, the Prince of Peace. So really, nothing has changed since the time Isaiah was written in regards to the way the world sees a prince. Not much has changed at all. The people that read these words, that read this letter, were looking towards mighty royalty that would come bring peace by vanquishing their enemies. They were waiting for the day that that a mighty king, the, the prince of peace, would take the throne and rescue the people. That's what they saw. That's what they wanted. That's what they thought they needed. This mighty prince that would come in and make everything better. This this coming Messiah would rule and reign, and by his sword would be their protector. He would be their rescuer, their peacemaker. But what's so interesting about this is that God had something else in mind. God had something else in mind. He knew what the world needed even when we didn't. He gave us what we needed even when we didn't want it. And he knew the only way to rescue the princess, the bride, his people, was to do the most outrageous thing anyone at that time or now could think of, and that's bring peace without a sword. If you look at the pattern of Scripture, though, this isn't a new concept of God doing things differently when it came to his unraveling story. This isn't a new concept. The story leading up to the birth of this prince, the story leading up to his perfect life lived here, and the story leading up to his death, resurrection, and ascension to the throne as king. All throughout scripture, we see it played out that God does not follow the normal pattern of what people would expect. God doesn't follow that normal pattern. You look at Jacob and Esau. We're taking it all the way back. Bet you didn't think that we'd be talking about Jacob and Esau in a Christmas message, right? Talk about Jacob and Esau. Esau, according to the world, would inherit the father's blessing because he was the firstborn. That was the culture. At that time, that's what happened. The firstborn received the blessing. But God had, d- had different plans. 
He went against the cultural norm for the sake of the unraveling story. He used some of the most unlikely men, like Abraham and Moses, that no one would ever expect to lead, ever. Let alone be the father of the line that would produce the coming prince. Or a man who refused to do what God said initially, literally, as God is talking to Moses from a burning bush, he's like, no, thank you. That's nice, God. That's really nice that you you want me to lead people, but that's okay. Moses did this three times. He told God no three times. He kept pointing to his brother. He's like, hey, look at my brother over here. He's a good leader. He's a good speaker. Talk to him. But God used that man to lead an entire nation of his people. We see this even in our passage in Isaiah 9 we've been going through. Isaiah 9, 4 says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So when you look at the story of Midian and Gideon, we once again, as through all scripture, see something unfold that no one would expect. A man who trusted the Lord walked onto a battlefield with a couple hundred men, against a horde of people, all to have victory by basically making a bunch of noise. Even this story, right now, in 2019, almost 2020, makes no sense. When you go to war, you bring a gun. You don't go out there and and make some noise and all of a sudden the the army just wipes themselves out. It doesn't make sense, but God does things differently. God does things differently. Our passage in Isaiah and scripture as a whole reveals the story of God's ways not being our ways. But I think the most profound way that we see this played out, the way we see really the tides shift leading to the coming prince that would save the world is through a little shepherd boy named David. So go ahead, open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16. We're going to start in verse 1. But before we, uh, we read this passage, it's important to know some backstory to really be able to fully grasp what's being said here. So Samuel, the name that this book was written for, written about was a man of the Lord that he played a key role in the transitioning of Israel from having judges to being in a kingdom. Israel had had enough with the judges at this time. Samuel was old, and the rest of the judges were not following the ways of the Lord. So the Israelites said, no, we're we're done. This is enough. They went to Samuel, and they said, we want a king. And even though Samuel him and hawed about it, the Lord answered their request and gave them a king. The first king appointed to this kingdom was Saul. I'm sure a lot of you have heard about Saul, but Saul, after being appointed king, he, he began to disobey the Lord. He began to do what he wanted versus what the Lord asked him to do. And this not only grieved the Lord, it grieved Samuel greatly. This man raised up as king had been rejected by the Lord. 
But as we've seen already, the Lord's ways are not our ways, which brings us into this passage right here, 1 Samuel 16, 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send, to, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So already, I feel like we can imagine what Samuel is thinking here. Oh, this is awesome. This is great. A new king is coming. I can't wait. This is going to be the one to replace Saul. Saul didn't follow the Lord. This man, he's going to follow the Lord, but he's going to be strong. He's going to be mighty. He's going to be handsome and powerful. If God's bringing a new king, he has to be a military genius. He's going to be everything that Israel needs. But then something happens that Samuel really and no one else was expecting. Let's look at verse 6 through 7. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6 through 7. When he came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So now Samuel has to be thinking, what? What are you you talking about, God? This is what the culture says is a king. He's standing before me. Eliab is what a king is supposed to look like. He's the firstborn. He's mighty. He's strong. He's powerful. This man fits the role of the new king perfectly. So God, what are you telling me right now? This doesn't make sense. This goes against everything that we know about kings. And you're also telling me that it's about his heart? What God says to Samuel in this is so important because it reveals that what man sees as king is not what God sees or needs as a king. Verse 8 through 10. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. So out of all of Jesse's sons, none of them have been chosen? Okay, God, you told me I'm coming to this guy in Bethlehem. I'm coming to this Bethlehemite, Jesse, and you're going to provide for me a new king. He just had all of these mighty men pass before me, and you're telling me that none of these guys are it? What's going on? So I'm guessing, highly confused, Samuel asks the next question in verses 11 through 12. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. What a plot twist. The lowliest of the sons, watching the sheep, 
the youngest, the smallest, nothing about this kid says king in any way. Maybe his eyes. It did say he had beautiful eyes. So, I mean, that, that equals a king, I guess. But no, n- nothing about this kid really screamed royalty. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. It's so funny to me that in all of this, man still clings to his ways. We still assume what God is doing. We assume we know what's best. But as we can clearly see, our ways are not God's ways. But then why is it that daily, each of us thinks we know what's best for our lives? Why is it that our culture is still obsessed with knowing what the right direction is because we know, because we want it our way, and if we want it this way, we're going to get it? As we can see, God does not cling to the social constructs man's created. He does not do what we think he's going to do for our sake. Everything he's done is for us and his glory. Everything. And again, he gave us what we needed when we didn't want it. And he gives us what we need when we don't want it. The story doesn't end here, though. God keeps flipping the script, using this boy from Bethlehem to keep this unlikely story going. The next chapter in our story is one everyone knows. I don't care if you've been in church your whole life or if you haven't. Everyone knows the story of David and Goliath. It starts off that this young shepherd boy, anointed to be king, is running back and forth from the battlefield. Why is this anointed king running back and forth from the battlefield? Oh, because he's still got to take care of his sheep and also bring his brother's food. Definitely sounds kingly, right? Still taking care of sheep and running back and forth for food. But that's exactly what he was doing. And there was a problem, though. The army was making no progress because this giant Philistine named Goliath was in their way. No one was going to fight him. No one. No matter how much he taunted, no one would approach. And honestly, I feel like I can relate with that. If there was a nine-foot guy with a giant sword standing in front of me, I don't necessarily think I'd want to approach him either. It doesn't seem like a wise choice. Six-one versus nine feet just doesn't, doesn't really line up very well. No one dared to fight him. No matter how much he taunted, again, no one would approach. But then this little shepherd boy, who trusted the Lord, stepped up and decided to face the giant. Which leads us to what I think is one of the most important parts of this story that sometimes is overlooked. And it's 1 Samuel 17, 38 through 40. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. 
Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So instead of doing what any other prince would do, instead of doing what any other king would do, which is put on your full armor, you get your sword, and you run into battle. David walked out with some rocks. And as we know, he slayed the giant with a rock. I know everyone knows this story, but that's pretty profound to think about. I feel like nothing screams God's character, his love for his people, and his desire to save his people more than by showing his power through a little boy in a little rock. Not a mighty man in a sword. As David said right before he slayed Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 46 through 47. I want you to pay really close attention to this because this, this right here, it hits it right on the head. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. That all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. These stories of David run through his life of the unconventional, where he could have used the sword and he doesn't. He could have killed Saul with the sword, but he doesn't. Then he could have killed Saul again with a sword, and he doesn't. God's painting us a picture through David's life. He's painting a picture, a foreshadowing of the coming prince. The prince of peace who would come to save the world in the most unlikely of ways. So fast forward to a time where David's long gone. A time where the people of Israel are waiting for the better David, an heir to David's throne, to emerge on the scene and wipe out their enemies. No matter what we see in scripture, everyone falls back into the pattern of thinking they know what's best and are expecting what they want. So that's what these people were expecting, and that's what these people were wanting. They were wanting this mighty king to arise and take David's throne and conquer their enemies. They still expect things the way they want. And once again, as always, God shows up in big ways, but in the smallest of ways. True to the story of David, we find ourselves in Bethlehem, also known as the city of David. Coincidence? I don't think so. And we see in Micah 5.2, this was written the same time as Isaiah. So this is the same time frame as Isaiah. And it says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So we're seeing this story unfold in the most unlikely of cities. Already once with David and again with the coming Savior. We see this unraveling of events where poor 
unwanted shepherds are in their field. We see a host of angels announcing that the Prince of Peace is, he's finally here. The Prince is here, you guys. Celebrate. But there's a minor, minor detail in all of this. Minor detail. Um, one, he's a baby. Just so you know. The new prince is here, but he's a baby. Number two, small, small details, but he, he's in a stable. He, he's also in a feeding trough. So, you know, you can find him there. He doesn't have any riches. He doesn't have a warm, cozy, silk-lined blanket to show he's royalty. No, no, he has straw, some swaddling clothes. That's this prince that's come to save you. But surely, surely this baby, even though he's not in great conditions right now, he's not in great conditions right now, but he will. He's going to grow up and he's going to conquer, right? That's what we want as a prince. So, so this baby, he's going to grow up and he's going to conquer, this baby would ride a donkey into town? He's not going to ride his magnificent giant steed through the city so people can be in, uh, awed and amazed by who he is, that he's riding town through his giant horse? No, he rides a donkey. This baby would not even carry a sword? In fact, he would rebuke one of his men for using a sword to cut off an ear when he's taken to be murdered? The Israelites were saying, no, God, uh-uh. This is not what you promised us, God. God, this is not what we want. We are not okay with this. Have you seen this guy? Have you seen him? This is a meek, mild man over here who, yes, he can do cool things, okay? He can, he can work miracles. He can heal people. That's wonderful. Thanks for that. But this is not what we wanted. We want peace our way. Through bloodshed and the sword, we would rather have Barabbas, a murderer, than this man you say is our prince. We don't want what you've given us. In fact, we hate him so much, we're going to kill him in the most brutal way possible. Because if this is your idea of a prince God, we don't want him. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This does not say, unto us a child is born, the conqueror of all the nations. This does not say, for unto us a child is born, whose bloodshed will be known throughout the land for his, his conquering skills and his ability to wipe out enemies. That's not what this says. Says, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This baby born who came to this place, a servant. This fully God, fully man baby came to live the most unconventional life royalty has ever known. 
This baby born that would bring peace. But not the way you or I or they ever thought or would think. This baby that would grow up and die on two rugged pieces of wood. Who would shed his blood on that cross. Who instead of using a sword, he was pierced with a spear. Instead of wiping out his enemies in one foul swoop, he was taken out by them. This Jesus who would take on the sins of the world for you and I who would suffer and die to bring peace in the most out-of-the-world, mind-blowing way, bringing peace by the blood of the cross. This Jesus that would then rise from the dead, defeating death, who would rise victorious as the king. This Jesus who's going to return, who's going to come back, who's going to bring his kingdom. Now, in the midst of this, I think we need to understand what peace even is in this context. The word for peace here is shalom. This word literally means wholeness. So when we talk about this prince of peace, it's a wholeness he has come to bring, but not the wholeness the the way the world would define it. It's a oneness of reconciliation with our creator. A oneness of reconciliation with our creator. This isn't usually what people think of when they think of peace. I mean, honestly, for me, if I were just to go sit down somewhere and someone said, hey, what's peace? Immediately, I would think of like a little peace sign and like flowers in someone's hair. You know, we, we as a culture, we just see peace differently than what the Bible actually means by peace. But this Jesus came to bring wholeness by his blood, by his sacrifice. Wholeness in our hearts, wholeness in our relationship with our creator. The only one that can complete us in our sinful state. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have wholeness with God through Jesus. This is the prince of peace Isaiah is talking about. This is that prince. This is the one that we celebrate. But is this the one that you see? As we come into Christmas in a few days, who is it you're thinking of? Who is that baby to you? Do you see Christmas for what it really is? Because I'm about to to say something that is kind of a mind-blowing concept, but you ready for it? It's not a time to celebrate a baby. It's a time to reflect on what that baby has done and will do. what he did to be titled the Prince of Peace. Are you leaving him in a manger this Christmas season? Or are you recognizing that if it wasn't for this baby, we would never have peace with our creator? 
baby did not come to conquer nations like the world would think. He came to conquer our hearts and to save our lives. He's the true prince. I want to challenge you all as we come into Christmas to consider not only taking the time to remember the birth of this Prince of Peace, but to remember the whole story. That that baby grew up to live the perfect life. Fulfill all the things that no man could before. Die the perfect death, rise a conqueror, raised his king. I want you to think through if this Prince of Peace is the one you are looking to in your life. I want you to think about true peace, true wholeness, a oneness of reconciliation with our Creator. Is this Jesus the one who is in your life? Is he the one that does this in your life? Or are you trying to find other ways that will never fill the void? Are you trying to fill the Jesus-shaped hole in your heart with something else? Family? Money? A job? Video games? Movies? You name it. Are you trying to make yourself whole, bring yourself peace when you yourself never can? Have you acknowledged that you've missed the mark of God's perfection? Have you realized you need this prince to rescue you? Or is Jesus just a baby to you? Is he the one who has saved you? Have we, church, realized he's the one that we need even when the world doesn't want him? Do we assume God will do things we want him to do, or do you realize that his ways are not our ways? That he works in the unconventional. That maybe what you think you need, he's going to do the polar opposite for our sake and for his glory. Are you turning to the true prince who brings a oneness of reconciliation with our creator? Or are you looking to the world? I want you to think about the very beginning of the sermon when I asked you to think what, what you think of when you think of a prince. What you think of when you think of peace. I pray now that when you think of this prince of peace, you're going to think of Jesus who gave it all for you in the most unconventional way. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, uh, thank you so much again for this time. Thank you so much again for who you are, for your love, for your grace towards us. God, I pray right now that as we leave this building, that we would not forget who you are truly as our Prince of Peace. I pray that we would remember you today, tomorrow, the day after that, this entire year, God, that we would not just think about your birth and celebrate that on Christmas, and we would not just think about your, your death and resurrection on Easter, God, but we would think about the whole story all the time. Yes, God, these times to celebrate are wonderful, but I pray that we never, ever miss the whole story, the purposes, 
Thank you for doing things differently for us. Thank you for living your life perfectly, Jesus, for us when we didn't deserve it. God, we love you and praise you for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand, actually, and close our service together.